Things are bad. Fences are up. There's people attacking other people, and no one knows exactly what's going on. You should probably stay inside. It seems we have a panic ensuing with the uh, citizen spouting nonsense about zombie grandmothers. Welcome to a different type of episode today. Today is my first interview where I talk to fellow filmmaker about their new work, Wait, Wait, Don't Kill Me, which premiered at the Colonial Theatre in Phoenixville in Pennsylvania. So I guess I should introduce my guest, Adam, Lip- Adam Lippy. Thanks for having me on, Jay. It's um, Thank you for agreeing to be on my podcast. Before I start this interview, please tell me more about Wait, Wait, Don't Kill Me. Looking at the poster and the website, I've been intrigued by the concept of it. Unfortunately, I haven't had a chance to watch the film as of yet, but I do look forward to watching it if it's still available to stream. Uh, it is available to stream. Uh, it's being hosted on the Colonial Theatre's website, so you can go to the Colonial Theatre and uh, their website, and it'll be under virtual screenings. Uh, or if you don't want to try to navigate their site, uh, my uh, website, waitwaitdon'tkillme.com, has a direct link to their uh, specific page, which will you know, allow you to watch it at home no matter where you are. Um, so the film itself is uh, about a, a virus that gets loose in inner city Philadelphia where it was shot. And um, the virus causes massive dehydration and since it takes place on the hottest day of the year, uh, and people are mostly water, uh, people are sweating like crazy, and they're attacking other people because for, for their liquids. And one of the attacks got gets caught on a viral video, and uh, the military comes in. They try to shut it down. They go to local hospital. They're 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 trying to figure out, you know, how do we control the virus? How do we come with a vaccine? And they realize they can't they can't do it quickly enough, so they just fence off, put up fences all over the place. Uh, so nobody can leave and just let everybody die. And it's about the people who are left there to die. Oh, it's a bit, bit morbid just left there to die. So there's no cure as of yet in the film itself. Correct. Like, okay. It seems a bit, it, the timing of release seems a bit um, ambiguous, if you know what I mean. It's like the whole COVID-19 situation is Well, the, the movie on. is actually worse about that because it's pretty specific about even though I, I had this concept years before, uh, the movie, uh, the, the villains openly discuss that they're talking about quarantines and about walls and about uh, fencing everybody in and how they they are f- essentially fine with however many people are going to die because they're going to hide the death count anyway uh, from the press. Yeah. And um, they're also fine with who it is is going to die because it takes place in the inner city and these people are poor and black and brown they're, they're, they're fine with that part. Um, and, uh, that was always in the concept. Uh, that was not something I came up with, you know, while I was trying to sell the movie when it was finished. Um, uh, yeah, when we were acting, you know, performing, uh, the, the, the people playing the villains performing it, they, those scenes are oddly done as comedy. Although, you know, I, I realized that the description of the film is very grim. Uh, the film is, is pitched as, as very dark comedy most of the time with, horrific elements and some Baroque deaths. Um, but every time I describe it, I, someone makes a face and I'm like, but it's actually a comedy. Um, it's just yeah. very dark. There's, it's um, dark comedy, like horror comedy. It's starting to kick off a little bit more. Um, we had scary movies a while ago, which were just a complete piss take off horror films, but they weren't supposed to be scary. 
But um, there's one film that was released in 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 the UK in 2014 by Edgar Wright called Shaun of the Dead. Um, while reading the concept of your film, I did pick up some similarities. Was Shaun of the Dead an influence by any chance? Uh, in certain ways, yeah. Uh, one of the things I really like about Shaun of the Dead is that if you took out the horror elements, it would be about a guy who pays no attention to his surroundings. Um, it would be kind of a sad drama about a guy who is completely unobservant. And I've always liked that about the movie, that if you took out an element, it would still work. Um, it would still function. And so my film is like that, is I think if you took out the horror, it would still be about the characters. It's uh, uh, a, a lot of uh, fully formed characters for a film that only runs 102 minutes. Um, and it's because the script was very, very overwritten. Uh, the early drafts of the script were uh, 142, I think, pages, and uh, it just kept cutting down. But I mostly cut out the big action and some of the larger set pieces and focused on the characters more. So you at least cared about what was going on. And it's not to say all of the characters are likable. They're not. It's just none of them are what would normally be the necessity in a horror film, which is that the, some of the characters at least have to be stupid in order to move the plot along. And I, I don't believe in doing that. Um, I believe that that's a cheat. And uh, you have to find ways around that. If you, you if you have things happen to people, um, it, you don't need it. It doesn't shouldn't be a, a consequence of the fact that they're not very bright. So I was pretty. I, I wanted to. I was very clear with the cast, and I was very clear when I was writing it that I wanted to make sure that nobody was playing a moron because that's very easy to do, and it's very. Uh, it gets you around plot problems, but it also takes it out of any believability realm and i was conscious of the fact that i didn't want the film to be self-aware even though it's frequently absurd yeah um um right and stupid cowtas does seem like just lazy writing to be honest yeah it is lazy i mean you know the same i did the same thing with exposition you know you have it you 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 have a fictional disease that i've made up and how do you get across like all the backstory and how it works and how many people are dead and you know without without just constantly having people just talk at at other characters or giving just really uh, blanket, obvious, boring exposition. So I found lots and lots of different ways around that uh, without having to do that, without, you know, turn the scenes into comedy, turn them into animation, turn them into any anything that will not be two doctors dryly explaining how disease works or someone explaining, hey, I know you because we've, we've been together for 30 years and your brother is really into uh, playing cricket. Uh, and uh, uh, he he follows it from the U.S., and I don't know how he does that. You know, things that would never be said between two people who know each other for 30 years. Um, yeah. And so I was very careful about doing that. So if I find it very frustrating when I watch professional movies that don't bother. They still have sequences like, uh, in a movie I liked very much, <clears throat> called Us. Um, I don't know if you've seen that. The yeah, Jordan, by Jordan, Jordan Peele. Yeah, Peele. The Jordan Peele film. Um, it is marvelous for two acts. And then the third act of the film has a scene in which one character explains to another character their entire backstory by standing at a chalkboard and <laughs> just stands there for five or six minutes, giving all the exposition that they couldn't, I guess, get out visually. Um, and I, I, my heart sank watching it um, uh, because I thought, Hey, I'm a low budget filmmaker with far less experience and Jordan Peele's a better filmmaker than me. And surely someone could have said, maybe there's a, maybe there's a, uh, 
smoother way to get this out without having to stop the movie for five minutes and explain everything. And so I was very careful about, you know, avoiding that sort of sequence. Yeah. Well, everyone starts somewhere. We Our first, like, talking from experience, my first film was about four kids going to this abandoned building and there's an alien that kills them all. It was, it was like literally about 15 minutes and it was terribly warped. It was terribly shot and I hated that film. I still got it on a DVD somewhere in my closet, which never comes out. That's my skeleton in my closet. But I do like look back on it thinking it's like how far I've came. So we don't, you might say like um, someone might be a better filmmaker than you, but you got a thing that we all start from somewhere. So. I mean, sure, but he'd already made him uh, uh, at that point. That was a second feature. He'd already he'd already made Get Out, which I would say is a better film anyway. But when you were given more money and more uh, uh, autonomy, you'd be like, you maybe maybe that's the problem is, you know, that was in the first draft, and they were like, oh, you had a huge hit. Go make the thing, and then don't worry about rewriting the sequence where someone's standing up at a chalkboard, uh, explaining all your backstory that you were unable to think through. Yeah, um, so a lot of um. Of I, I realize now we're, we're, your show has turned to let's bash uh, let's bash the movie us, but that was not the point. <laughs> it's not. It, I'm not bashing us. It's a good movie. Don't get me wrong. It's a. Uh, I was so it's okay. You can blame me. <laughs> I'm not passing the blame on anyone. But still, without that scene, it's still a good. It's still a good film on its own. <laughs> it, it's very good to that point, I think. But go ahead. Uh, let's go back to. Wait, wait, don't kill me. You were talking about your antagonists, your two major film, like, villains. Um, during a previous interview, you mentioned Joseph McCarthy and his chief counsel, Roy um, Conan. And over here in the UK, we, we, I don't really know those names. I had to do a quick Google about them. Would you mind explaining the activities and how they influenced your writing style during this process? Sure. So Roy Cohn, I think of as one of the most fascinating and terrible people of the 20th century. Um, Yeah. He was um, in uh, one of the leads in the uh, when they went after the Rosenbergs. Um, And uh, but he became most famous for being uh, Joseph McCarthy, the senator's um, right hand man. And when they were trying to root communists out of the government. Uh, when we had what was called the Red Scare in the U.S., because we were scared that communists were infiltrating every, all of our lives. That included uh, HUAC, uh, which is the House on Americans Activities uh, Committee, which went after um, people in Hollywood and blacklisted all sorts of writers, directors, performers, or even like you know knowing someone who's a communist and you know ending their careers either permanently yeah. or they would they would have to go under pseudonyms. I know <clears throat> some of your uh, Listeners might be uh, familiar with the film Trumbo, which is about that. Um, uh, the writer Dalton Trumbo was was uh, someone who broke the blacklist um, because of Kirk Douglas's influence on uh, at the time where he was able to get Trumbo's name on Spartacus, I believe. But um, so there were t- you know thousands and thousands of people who were uh, suffered by guilt by association or just whispers. Uh, they would force people to name names uh, and tell on their friends. Plenty of suicides. Um, and they often went after Jews. Um, this was a way to get rid of Jews and gays in uh, certain sectors um, because of what McCarthy and Cohn did. And Cohn was really the, the one with all the ideas. He was the slick guy. Um, I'm not saying McCarthy was completely an empty shell, but it was close. And, you know, he McCarthy was a, 
would stand up with a, a piece of paper and says, I have in my hands here a list of 200 communists in the U.S. government, and we've got to get, get them out of here. And of course, the paper was blank. But, you know, uh, uh, and if anybody has seen um, the George Clooney film, Good Night and Good Luck, it's about, it's also about that. Uh, it's also about yeah. Joseph McCarthy um, and how Edward R. Murrow stood up to him and how that was part of his downfall. It wasn't his complete downfall. So Roy Cohn um, w- was the one who decided, um, you know, who, who they were going to go after. And uh, Roy Cohn was, was Jewish and also uh, closeted, was, was gay. Um, and uh, they used the fact that Cohn was Jewish uh, against charges of anti-Semitism. So they would, it was a shield. So essentially what would happen is people would say, you're only going after Jews. You're only doing this. You're only interested in that. And he would say, how could I be anti-Semitic? I'm Jewish. But he was very self-hating, of course. Um, yeah. And uh, he was also, oddly enough, uh, one of the heirs to the Lionel Train uh, company. Um, but um, after um, uh, McCarthy's gambit fell apart, when it got too public, they started going after the military. And there's a very famous um, thing you can find probably on YouTube. There's plenty of documentaries on it where he, where the military pushes back. Um, in a, a very complex sequence where they make all sorts of homophobic comments aimed at Cohn because he was trying to push one of a, a guy that he had a crush on up the military ladder and the military was having none of it. And they used that against him. And um, there was all sorts of homophobic comments uh, throughout that uh, uh, hearing um, to throw uh, Cohn off. But uh, McCarthy, after that hearing, uh, was censored uh, in the Senate and um, his career deteriorated. Uh, Cohen essentially became a mob lawyer um, and then became Donald Trump's lawyer in the early 70s uh, for his racial discrimination case when he was sued yeah. by the Nixon administration for um, uh, what was called redlining, uh, where they weren't allowing black people to rent their, their uh, apartments. Um, and that's kind of something to be sued by the Nixon administration <laughs> for being racist. <laughs> Um, because they famously had a policy that came out many years later that the drug war was absolutely about the fact that, uh, according to their uh, one of their attorneys, he said it later in life after he'd already done prison time for uh, Watergate, said, um, look, we couldn't make being against the war uh, or be, we couldn't make being black or against the war illegal. So we just sort of created a drug war uh, so we could associate certain kinds of people with certain kinds of drugs. Uh, and we knew it was wrong. And, you know, that was just a way of essentially getting rid of their enemies. So the drug war that America has been fighting since the late 60s was always bogus and they knew it. Um, so uh, the Nixon administration being conceived entirely in paranoia and racism still thought Donald Trump was so racist and his father was so racist that they sued them. Um, and it's Cohn was, his, was, of course, and Cohn was was uh, Trump's lawyer. And that's, uh, he, he taught Trump how to talk. Um, there's a documentary that came out long after I conceived of this. It came out last year called Where's My Roy Cohn? Uh, because that's what kind of like, you know, bullheaded attorney that he that he wanted. Because uh, Cohn taught him that what you're supposed to do is never admit fault and always attack. And um, anybody who lives in America or even outside of America can see how effective that was um, in terms of don't ever admit you did anything wrong and always just deflect, essentially. So um, Cohn continued to be a mob lawyer, and then he was part of what is some of the most evil lobbyists who ever lived, some of whom are still alive, most of whom have been convicted of crimes, all of whom work with Donald Trump. Um, uh, 
uh, what was called Black Manafort Stone, um, yeah. the lobbying group. Um, and I, I might get some of this wrong because I'm coming off the cuff here, but um, uh, but also Roy Cohn was involved in uh, a bribery that got Reagan elected uh, that Roger Stone later admitted to uh, after the statute of limitations had run out. Um, so um, Black Manafort Stone was also run you know, Cohn was part of it, and Lee Atwater, who later ran D- George H.W. Bush's campaign, um, at a very variety of racist ads. But they were lobbyists for often what they would do is they would find a third world country leader who needed um, help, uh, you know, getting weapons to murder their own people if, in case there was a revolt. So they would they would uh, lobby for them and they would try to get funds and buy weapons and all sorts of things like that. And so when Paul Manafort was, uh, who was um, Trump's, uh, uh, one of his campaign managers who was most involved in Russia and was part of um, the initial Ukraine scandal where he stole tons and tons of money from the people. Uh, when Manafort was uh, convicted of tax fraud a couple of years ago, his daughter said, and they were taking all the money that they that he had earned, um, his daughter said, uh, I didn't want that money anyway. It's blood money because she knew where it came from. So, uh, but re- back to Roy Cohn, um, in the, uh, he, he was closeted, but, you know, kind of open about how many people he, how many uh, young boys he was sleeping with. And he did, uh, get AIDS and, um, he was part of the early experiments, uh, with AZT, which was an inhibitor kind of drug. And, uh, but he died, uh, denying that he had AIDS to his last breath. And he died actually the same year he was disbarred by, um, the government. Um, not allowed to be a lawyer, and he he died owing you know the IRS millions and millions of dollars, <clears throat> and uh, you know that's one no, of debt. Yeah, of course, uh, <laughs> it's not it's not ever pay anyone. But he was known as a, he was a mob lawyer. I mean he he was a lawyer for the guys who ran the the um, the famous disco club Fifty Four, um, and you know lots and lots of lots and lots of mob ties. Um, whatever whatever the sleazy thing was, he would do it, um, and. Um, uh, there's some famous, you can watch some, there's two documentaries that came out about him recently is where's my Roy Cohn. And there's another one that for HBO, um, uh, cause he's on the AIDS quilt. And so they, they named it after that. And, um, uh, then there's also, um, a, a, a docudrama about him with, uh, um, uh, James Woods called citizen Cone. Um, it's, uh, it's okay, but James Woods is excellent in it. And then there's angels in America. Uh, which is an amazing play and a, and a very good HBO series where Al Pacino plays Roy Cohn. Yeah. Um, and, and he's basically going through the whole process of telling his doctor, his doctor telling him, Oh, you have, you have AIDS. He's like, uh, he's like, I'm not, I do not have AIDS. You know, uh, I have cancer and I'm not gay. I sleep with men, but I'm not gay. You know, that kind of bizarre denial. Now I realize your question Necess- was was that uh, an answer to a, a full history of Roy Cohn? Because that's always my concern is if someone asks me a question like, hey, what do you know about Roy Cohn? I will talk for three hours. <laughs> it was more like how did Joseph McCarthy and Roy Cohn influence your writing style for your antagonists in Wait, Wait, Don't um, Kill Me? So the concept that I had was what if two people were awful um, and they were manipulative and the villains of the film they come in right away if you watch the trailer which you can find on wait wait don't kill me.com or just google it it'll be on youtube um you see a bit of a speech from the from the villain that would normally be at the end of a james bond movie but the concept was 
throw throw the ridiculous speech that a James Bond villain would give and put it in the first scene. Because if you announced your ridiculous plans right away, no one would ever believe you because they're so absurd, especially if you're telling them right away. And even if those are your exact plans. So anybody who watches it will go, oh, that's pretty funny. Um, but, you know, of course, not really consider that he might be telling the truth. And because sometimes when you tell, you, know, when you say something absurd, nobody believes you. It, it, it came from um, the movie Gross Point Blank with uh, John Cusack, where he goes to his high school reunion when he's out to, he's hired to, you know, kill some people. And um, when, at the high school reunion, people ask him what he, what he does. And he's like, I'm a professional killer. And someone will say something like, oh, well, you know, how's the, how's the dental insurance with that? You know, <laughs> you know, what are, what are the benefits? You know, all, all that stuff. Nobody takes it seriously because nobody would ever say that. So the concept yeah. in, in Wait, Wait, Don't Kill Me was, was based a little bit on that, but also the idea of what if these two guys um, played their scenes in which everybody else was a prop and everybody else uh, uh, was just to witness you flirting with each other. So every scene between them is basically a sex scene, but there's no kissing and the dialogue is innuendo in it, but you could miss it if you weren't paying attention. Yeah. And, um, but I just said, everyone else is just annoying to you and you're just there to amuse each other. This is all flirting. And, and so they went with that. And so my concept initially had to do with those, those two figures in history as you're two really awful people. But what if, how would they handle if they were alive today and, you know, and they were in a sexual relationship, but it ha you know, they can't be out um, because, you know, say that they got together before Don't Ask, Don't Tell, uh, which is an American policy where they were not allowing, uh, uh, you were not allowed to be gay in the military. Because one of the things that Roy Cohn did um, was he scared the American government so much that uh, President Eisenhower um, started what was called the Lavender Scare, in which he would root out anybody who was gay working for the government. And that was in place for some 40 years. Um, and um, so that's where it's a policy, like, you know, you couldn't be gay and be in the military. And then I think it was Clinton. Bill Clinton had a policy called Don't Ask, Don't Tell, which was if they found out you were gay, then they would throw you out of the military. But they weren't allowed to ask you anymore. Because that was the way that people used to get out of uh, when we had a draft, a military draft. If you said you were gay, they would not bring you into the military. So when people were drafted for Vietnam and they didn't want to go, they would just, you know, act in an effeminate manner or the claim that they were gay. And it would be up to the military to prove that they were making it up. But nobody was going to go through that process in the, yeah. uh, in the late 60s, early 70s. And draft... What's that? Uh, and draft dodging is very like a serious crime in the yeah a lot of people had to go to Can had to go to canada and hide sure yeah um and and so my concept was that these two guys got together while uh you know don't ask don't tell was still in place and they never got comfortable being out and plus the power imbalance of, of one being ahead of the other but the other you know the guy who was beneath him was more of the person who actually wrote everything and was and the other guy was the more bombastic ridiculous one but had a bit of self-awareness that it was bombastic and ridiculous i realized that was a what a 15 minute answer to that question <laughs> <laughs> yeah well it's like a, i can um anybody wanted a, anyone who wanted an abbreviated non-wikipedia entry into the into the history of roy Cohn, i think you just got it <laughs> Well, it saves a lot of time on reading. Not many people like reading these days. 
it was it's 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 interesting uh, to say to say and um clearly with your answers now man if, if i and after this i go and watch the film when i've got time because me and my partner are looking for look, looking for a new film always look for new films to watch um when i watch when i watch it i'll hopefully see the influences of joseph mccarthy and roy Cohn from this from what i mean you may not about. it's just basically what i told the actors and i thought it was important yeah that um you know, especially because the ca- I cast two guys who, you know, the, the beer guy is supposed to be the Justin McCarthy type and the smaller guy is supposed to be the Roy Cohn type. I'm, I love what, the, what these guys did with the role, but, you know, the, this, the smaller guy, the slicker guy, he's, um, you know, uh, I, thought, I thought of him as a fine Southern gentleman. Preston Smith is his name. And he plays a character named Serious Business, um, which is uh, a joke that's for about seven people. Um, and uh, he, he, no, neither of them are named in the film. It's just in the credits, uh, in the opening credits and the closing credits. But he's known as Serious Business because I'm a big fan of the opening 20 minutes of Ishtar. Um, yeah. And ha- have, have always been a big fan of the opening 20 minutes of Ishtar. I can't sign off on this new version where everybody thinks it's good because it unfortunately isn't. But um, the first 20 minutes is hysterical. And they sing a song in the opening called Dangerous Business. Uh, if people don't know what Ishtar is, it was a... Uh, financially unsuccessful Elaine May film with Dustin Hoffman and Warren Beatty as um, uh, very poor writer singers uh, trying to make a career for themselves who end up in um, Morocco and part of a military operation accidentally in com- complicated endeavors that that are not satisfying to the, the viewing public much. Uh, but the first... 20 minutes where they start playing around with these awful songs are that sequence. Those sequences are so funny and they create this song called dangerous business, which is the lyrics are telling the truth can be dangerous business. Honest and popular don't go hand in hand. Um, If you tell people that you can play the accordion, no one will hire you for a rock and roll band. Um, But we can sing our hearts out and it goes on from there. And I, I know that I'm not reading that I'm going off memory. Uh, but the point is that I would have called him dangerous business, except I thought there's no reason to even bring about even the hint of being sued over something like that. So I just called him serious business. Yeah. Um, so the way you were talking, you you seem to have a lot of politics and other film references as influenced during this making of this film and writing and that. And According to your IMD page, Wait, Wait, Don't Kill Me is your only credit. Because searching for you was quite hard. Because I, I kept getting a clothing brand for some reason. Right. There's a guy who has a very similar name that has a clothing brand. Plus, there's a DA uh, in Baltimore. Yeah. I don't know if he's still the DA who has my same name. And we once exchanged messages. Because when I was a film critic, um, I started to get a little bit uh, popular. And... Uh, he once sent me a, a message. I came around LinkedIn or via email, and he he jokingly wrote, um, "I guess you're more famous than me now. <laughs> uh, um, you're you're the most famous ad of Lippy right now because I think I had just gotten on Rotten Tomatoes as a critic, and I don't remember if this was around the time uh, I was writing for a, a, a website, and they flew me out to Denver because I was voted uh, uh, like one of the 20 best critics in America. Um, so yeah, I started as a film critic." Um, I did make shorts in, in college, uh, but I did not make anything after the year 2000 until starting 
you know, shooting this in 2015. Um, so, so it was a five-year process, the uh, whole shooting and pre-production and post-production. Oh, longer. Uh, longer. Uh, seven. Uh, it was written in 2013. Yeah. And then we, we had a couple of false starts. Um, tried to make the movie in Philadelphia in 2014. Uh, one time didn't work. Tried to cast it. He, uh, I live um, in uh, not in Philadelphia now, but outside of uh, Philadelphia uh, in the suburbs. And I uh, tried to make it in Philadelphia the first time. Couldn't quite find the cast that I wanted because uh, because I, I, I made a, a one would say an error, but I don't think of it that way. So it was the, the film takes place in Germantown, uh, which is in the inner city of Philadelphia. It specifically takes place in Nice Town, um, which is a, 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 has very high uh, murder rates, even though it's called Nice Town. Uh, it is a real place, though. Yeah. Um, and I uh, I wanted to write something that was about what I saw. I didn't want it to. I I didn't want to write about me. Now you know, uh, I'm assuming people from listening to this can tell that I am a white person, and. Uh, Germantown does not look like that. I, you know, I lived there, but that I, I, I was an anomaly in a sense. Yeah. And uh, I couldn't write a thing about that, that sort of idea and then just have it be your traditional horror film with a lot of screaming dead white teenagers. Uh, it I didn't, didn't uh, interest me at all because I've seen that so much. Yeah, that's like and, the most common thing when people say they're going to make a horror film and it's just a lot of screaming white teenagers and so and so there's almost no screaming in the film and there's uh no screaming dead white teenagers in the film it's all mostly adults yeah um and uh, yeah so so but i i came up a casting with a casting problem in the conception alone which was um the lead is a hispanic male in his 40s and his wife played by a black woman in her late 30s and the problem you have is nobody writes parts for those people so if nobody writes parts for those people, then those actors don't exist. Yeah, unfortunately, a lot of them. Um, because they're out of the business. Because yeah. because the the because the, the you know the common wisdom is that uh, films with black leads or Hispanic leads uh, do not play well outside of America. So nobody bothers with it, and I couldn't just make it about a bunch of white people who live in the inner city, or even just drop the inner city part because it just you know that was it was about how these people would have to deal with another problem in their lives um, that it wouldn't be a, a, a viral pandemic movie where, um, you know, Oh, it's in the middle of nowhere. It's the crazies. It's, you know, uh, or it, you know, it's spread out. I wanted it to be densely populated. I thought that was important. And I wanted race and class to be uh, an issue, which it, uh, race is much more of an issue in America than it is in the UK. I'm, I'm aware of that because you, you are a, uh, a society that's more about uh, class differences. Yeah, we, we were more. America erases that by pretending we don't have them, even though we do. Um, but but by making everything about race instead. Um, so I, I decided to attempt to tackle both. Who knows if it was successful? That's up to the eye of the beholder, anyway. Um, In all fairness. So, in all fairness, race is always going to be an issue within the film industry because a lot of films are still to this day are whitewashed. Uh, it's it's unfortunate, but it does happen. And like you say, there's not much racism in the UK, but I, it's way more about class. Like, are oh, you upper class or lower class? And that's the kind of difference between America and the UK. But in the UK, we um, there's a lot of people, what, what we would call boomers, like baby boomers and that, 
um, they tend to attack refugees and like people from the Middle East and Asians. Yeah, pull, uh, sort of pulling up the ladder type people. Yeah. If you know what that means. But is that an expression you have in the UK? Pull up the ladders, no. But like I, I've heard it before. Just we don't really use. I don't have anyone use it over here. But um, um well, it, it has to do with. Uh, so there was there originally was a scene what we shot which isn't in the movie. And wait, wait, don't kill me. That was a perfect example of pulling up the ladder. Uh, but pulling up the ladder is basically my idea, and it's not mine idea. You know, I didn't come up with the phrase. In which immigrants who used to be abused and vilified in America, um, if you give it eighty or ninety years, they're suddenly going to be the ones who don't want the new people uh, in in their country. So Jews, Italians, Polish people, uh, uh, they're, they for, they they seem to have forgotten what they were how they were treated in say the thirties and the forties in America. And all of a sudden the, the new villains are, you know, Mexicans, Muslims, whatever. Um, and that would be called pulling up the ladder behind you. Yeah. Uh, because you're, you, 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 you got through on the ladder that you were either allowed to or not allowed to use, uh, before we had such a thing as illegal immigrants. Um, it was just, you know, come one, come all. And then, and then you you forget about it, and then you 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 go, oh right, I'm really an American. Um, you're not. You're new, as if you know that mattered one way or the other. Um, uh, so that's what. Yeah, there used to be a scene in the film that we did shoot, but it didn't work, where uh, one of the characters who's Asian um, tries to get into a building that he doesn't live in. He's terrified because he's watched his boss get killed, and um, there's another Asian woman with a uh, a thick Vietnamese accent and the, uh, she will not let him in the building. And he is a second generation American with, with no uh, audible um, Asian accent and she won't let him in the building. And you, you know, the way that it's written, it's obvious that she doesn't trust him and she thinks he's a murderer. And, you, and, and it's a, it's basically about that very thing. It's about, okay, this is someone who is distrustful because he didn't get in quote the right way, even though America is mostly eliminated the right way. Yeah. Uh, it's a lot of, it's a lot of issues around that kind of thing but um if it didn't work it didn't work in your in your film it worked in the it worked in the the scripted scene but it didn't work um as cut together yeah that, um that's the point about like... it was a good it was a good line that i missed uh basically he's he the character is running away after he watches boss get killed the supermarket and he runs to this the nearest building, rings all the buzzers, can't get in, and she lives in the building and she lies to him and says that the buzzers do work and that, you know, why does she want why does he want to get in? And he's like, Well, you know, he's like, uh, I, I can't trust you, you know, I don't like that supermarket anyway. Um, like, you know, you are you saying you're the killer? And he's like, No, 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 the killer is he's coming this way, you know, like um, uh, you know, please help and you know, and he and she says, Well, tell them to ring the buzzer like everybody else, and then shuts the door in his face. Um but uh, it did. It, it, it uh, created a, a bit of a slowdown in the film, even if, if it had some lines in it that I thought were funny. Um, but yeah, you have to lose things like that sometimes. Yeah, I, I don't regret losing that scene. There's a that's difference when like this is what normal like people like who are just like like consumers of films don't really understand. It's like when asked when like some people do are intrigued by scripts and they like you can access scripts online. And people like read the scripts and watch the films. Like, well, that part isn't in it. And it's like, well, yeah, it might work on the script, but it might work on paper, but never works 
on screen. And that's the beauty of filmmaking. If it doesn't work on paper, it doesn't work on screen and everything. Um, so you were talking about taking some stuff out of scripts. Was there anything improvised, like, you're quite happy with that worked? Yeah, there's, a, there's, a, the, the, there's one line in particular that's funny that the, uh, the, main, the general improvised. I think that's funny. Most of it is not really different. Um, from the, the way the script was written was, it was very different in the way that, that you would ever write a script and it would be the kind of thing that would guarantee that no one would ever make the movie, which was fortunate that I ended up making it, yeah. which is all the transitions were written into the script. Um, the visual transitions, the, uh, there was what's called a pre-lap where you'd write a bit of dialogue that you'd hear at the end of the previous scene that would lead into the next scene. And I wrote it with all the transitions in, into the script which is not how anybody would ever want you know who's directing a movie go what do you mean you're going to get rid of this you're you're, ty- you're you're tying me down here if the script is supposed to be a blueprint so there's a couple things i did that was one of them and one of the reasons i did that was i wanted everything to be feel very connected so if you heard like one word from a previous sentence uh at the end of one scene it would then follow up it would be visually connected to the next scene so it was all in there and we shot as many of those as we could and then some of them ended up in the movie and they tend to get a laugh because they're funny when they happen and they helps you know keep the editing kind of snappy and the other thing that i did was i'd read lots of scripts when i was in college and what what i found um most common amongst scripts is that they were uh uh not very interesting um and even for movies that i had seen that, were, that succeeded. Uh, reading the script was ne- was rarely a pleasurable experience. Um, only when the script screenwriters would have fun. Like I remember, you know, my my school had a very significant library of scripts, and you could just read, and and uh, they were bound, and you would go through them. And I remember the Monty Python and the Holy Grail script had jokes that they had sort of scribbled in the margins, and it added to the humor. And you know, those jokes don't end up in the movie, but it's it's funnier than it would have been. And even scripts, I remember reading Taxi Driver, which is one of my favorite films, and reading the script and think. I mean, this is pretty close, I guess, but this isn't nearly as riveting. Um, and, you know, some of the subtext is here, some of it's not. Um, and so I thought most, since I'm a nobody, uh, nobody's heard of me and I'm trying to get an agent and, you know, how do I do this? How do I, how do I make this script stand out, distinguish it? And so the the script was written where the descriptions were very, uh, very much like reading a novel. Yeah, like very uh, verbose, very uh, florid, um, visceral, very visceral descriptions. Like you could you could feel the violence in the way that things were described. Playful, and the dialogue is all written like as if it were a stage play. Quick uh, banter, monologues, uh, uh, things that you know you couldn't really do in a movie because they have to worry about pacing and move faster, and you couldn't have someone just stop and talk for a couple minutes. And I just put them all in, you know, it would just be conversations in the midst of a horror film. You'd be like, okay, well now we're going to have a conversation. And I, and I, I just put it all in there. And so it made, it probably reads very oddly because it does not function like a normal script would. And what, you know, my early drafts um, had much more action and violence, like way over the top sequences that are just me making fun of other sequences in movies that I thought could go further uh, and then we'd lose most of those. And most of those monologues were what the actors auditioned with. Those were their sides. So they'd audition with each act, each character of the 12 main characters. They'd always have like two scenes in which they could show off. So the first scene, they would audition with that. And then the second scene, they would audition with the second scene. 
And so they didn't have to come up with their own sides because I already had all of it. And most of that dialogue that was in the first draft ended up pretty much in the movie. Um, a couple of them did, you know, were a little bit shortened, but a lot of it almost verbatim. Um, so it was a way of going about it that you should never do. Um, and I don't know whether it hurts the film um, that it's uh, organized in such a way yeah. that I was, I wanted the actors to be able to shine in the midst of what would normally be, here's all the gross out stuff. You know, it has the gross out stuff, but it also has people being able to, to perform. And, and I hope that that meant that the actors trusted me that I would, uh, I'm not an over director. I'm not someone who's like, you know, um, getting in the way of their process, you know, there wasn't a lot of improv improv, uh, but it wasn't really necessary because everything was so structured. And, you know, sometimes an actor would say, Hey, can I change it to this? I'm like, if it's easier for you to say, I mean, that's fine. All I want is I, 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 here's what I need in this scene. I need this joke to land and I need this plot point to come out. However, we get there, as long as it's in some reasonable amount of time, I'm fine with however easy it is for you to say it. Um, it's not for me, you know, if, if, if the way that I've wrote it is too, uh, di- it will cause you to be tongue tied. We're not doing it that way. We'll do it a way in which you, you know, you need, you, it's easy for you. You know, it does, you know, it, it, it does the movie no good if the script is too clever and the dialogue's unplayable. So let's make it playable. Yeah. Uh, but there was very little difference between what was written and what was, what was, uh, was performed. It sounds like the film is going to be more like, flow a lot better since you were saying that like you let the actors have creativity in your story it's like fair enough you are it, it is your vision it is your story but it seems like when you were ma- um, making this film you allow name to have an input and allow name to continue your story to make your story a lot better it's, so it sounds like it's gonna be a it's gonna be a good film allowing the actors have create create a flow in that um Ah, just uh, my train, my train of thought just crashed there. <laughs> Apologize about that. So, does the film, like at near the end, is it like, do, do, is there enough space for you to continue to make a uh, wait, wait, don't kill me too, if you ever have the chance to? Oh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do this again. You wouldn't um, do it. Again. I. No, no, I, I, I knew what my mistakes were, which was you, you make a thing this big, um, where, you, you just. Yeah, this this movie, the original draft had like, you know, 70 some odd speaking parts, hundreds of extras, tons of locations. And I pared it down. But eventually, you know, this the finished film is like about 45 speaking parts, uh, 40 locations, 100 extras. And it, it costs basically nothing. So um, the notion of doing anything like that, again, I wouldn't I wouldn't dare to. And uh, there's so many downsides to to doing a movie that big, uh, especially as your first film that I would never want to re- uh, recreate it. And it's been so long. I mean, it, it, it's, it's not like, Oh, the story is finished. It's not one of those concepts. It's, it's, it's more like, um, I wouldn't want to, you know, things that slow you down when you're making a movie, um, are necessary in a horror film. It's makeup, it's effects. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with the art of doing it. I mean, I learned, in post-production, like if some effects not working on set, uh, it's super cheap to fix it, um, in post-production. And most people will never be able to tell the difference, which is very strange. Like you spend days storyboarding something and planning it. And then, and then it doesn't work on set. And then you just pay someone 
comparatively small amount of money to fix it. And you're like, yeah, that's pretty much what I was going for. Uh, I have no idea why I stretched out so much when uh, uh, we could have just done it this way. Uh, if I, if I had known uh, and I didn't, um, you know, I had, I had been very focused on let's, let's uh, do practical effects completely. Let's minimize the digital effects uh, because that practical effects don't date. I mean, the, in my mind, the best use of practical effects in a, in a, in a feature film, horror film is the thing, the John Carpenter version. Yes. And that, that, that movie holds up tremendously. And then if you see the version from 2011, it looked bad then. Um, so um, even though they had more money and, and, and um, you know, better technology, it, it was a worse film. Not, not just, you know, because it's a retread in a way, but because it's uh, it, the effects aren't convincing. And I, my thought was practical effects, if they work, are going to be more convincing. So practical effects. Because they're, 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 not gonna, they're not going to age. And then what I learned in post-production is, hey, that's not really true. Um, they can fake it well enough where no one will notice as long as it's not the focus of the shot, as long as it's not the only thing going on or you're lingering on it for more than a second or two. Yeah. No one will ever notice. There are probably 60 or so effects, special effects uh, that were added in post-production. I, I have a feeling most will never notice any of them. Um, maybe a handful here and there, but yeah, th they're not, they're never the focus of the shot. So, so it was just me changing. Okay. I need this. I need this. This has to look like this. This has to say this, you know, um, you know, cover this product with something, you know, that, that kind of, you know, you worry about, you know, I don't want to be sued. So you cover products that are visible or signs or something like that. But yeah, no one will ever notice almost any of them. Um, and I, I was very thrown by how much easier it would have been to just do uh, it digitally. I'm not recommending, you know, I w part of it is me going, I wouldn't want to go through that side of it again. Um, the, the effects, the, the onset and, and then the prep and then the worrying add so much time and stress that it's, uh, it's just not worth doing a horror film, at least for me again. Um, I, I didn't, uh, that's a, that's a reason not to make a sequel is, you know, even if it, it got bigger. I mean, I, I was, I had an interview the other day and the guy said, you know, well, would you, would you, uh, shoot, what would you shoot next? And I said, well, you can't shoot anything right now. Like, you know, my next script that I wanted to shoot in the fall had some sex scenes and it had violence in it, but they haven't figured out in the U S how you could do any of that. Who's going to ensure a day. Yeah. You know, if you have to touch other people, like what, if, if you're shooting on something, if you're shooting something that's more than one day and somebody gets sick, are is your movie just over? Um, are you done? Uh, who's going to ensure that? Um, how do you ensure, uh, uh, you know, physical intimacy or violence where someone has to touch someone else? You, you can't. So um, he said, well, what about, you know, he said, there's animated sequences in the film. And I said, I guess the only, and I jokingly said, the only way you could do it would be to animate the entire movie. Um, and uh, I wouldn't want to do that. And I, I was actually talking with a lady who animated the film on the phone yesterday. She said, I don't, I couldn't do a whole feature. And I said, I was only kidding in the interview. Don't worry. <laughs> I had, I honestly had no interest in, in doing that. I mean, I wouldn't put, want to put anybody through that. Uh, she um, did the extraordinary animated sequences in the film. And there's a, a sequence late, uh, her name's Ellen Marcus. And she did a, a sequence late in the film. That's really my favorite thing in the whole movie. Um, and um, I would, you know, it, it, animation takes a lot of time and, and uh, you know, I mean, I technically, I guess, oh, well, if I got one or two people working on it, they could be done in 2027 at this at this pace. 
but I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to put anybody through that. And, and also, you know, it was, you know, first films are, 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 are supposed to show what you can do. And the film shows what I can do sort of an individual way that I can write a sequence that I can direct actors that I can construct a horror sequence that I can build some suspense that I can do misdirections that I can do comedy. It has all of this stuff in it that, that, you know, that I could hand off somebody to do the animation and integrate it, that I could add jokes and with ADR, uh, that, I, that some of the, some of the stuff is, uh, that I cut is sensible that I cut it, um, that I can keep things to a, a length, you know, the film runs 96 minutes, despite having a first draft that was 140 some odd pages. Um, considering how overstuffed it is, you wouldn't think that would be possible. Um, so no, I, I, I wouldn't, you know, long answer there. Yes. Uh, I would not, uh, uh, do a sequel. Um, and I can't imagine anyone paying, paying me to do it either. <laughs> so, um, talk, uh, talking about making films, you were on about, like, you got a lot of stuff quite cheaply or next to nothing. Um, how, how do you come about funding for the film and how much was the budget? If you don't mind me asking. I don't mind you asking, but you're never supposed to answer that question, but I'll tell you, uh, I'll tell you that, um, the first half of the budget when we first shot, uh, in 2015 was raised through, uh, friends and family. And then the second half, um, I had a nine to five job and I just put money away. And there was a period between, let's see, August of 2015 and April of 17, there was one shooting day and I just saved money in that time. And, then you know, had to bring the cast back to, to, for pickup days two and a half years later. Um, and, and, you know, just hope that it worked. And I don't know, nobody can really tell, which is, I, I, I'm, I'm a little bit proud of that, that you, that you can't tell that, you know, we've hidden a lot of it. I mean, you know, continuity errors, I mean, they're there, but you know, I'm never going to point them out. I love films have continuity errors. It's, it's fine having continuity errors. Um, there's a lot of people who take, who go to see films and use the continuity errors as a hobby for some reason. I do it. I find myself doing it a lot and it's worse. Well, once you, once you make, once you make movies, it becomes hard not to notice. Like when I watch, when I watch television or movies, I can hear all the ADR. I hear all of it. And my girlfriend will be watching it and I'll, I'll giggle to myself because I've noticed like some really bad ADR. And she's like, what is that? And she's like, I, I can't even hear it. I'm like, I hear all of it. And, and someone said to me, well, it's worse when you like, if you've got headphones on, you're watching a reality show. I'm like, I'm noticing it without the headphones, but yes, um, you become so attuned to that stuff. It, it's harder once you've made a movie to, to put that part of it down, especially because I was a film critic, it's very difficult for me to just enjoy a thing for what it is. Um, because my brain is working in a different way, either the analytical or, uh, the analytical way of like, how am I going to write about this? Or the how is this put together way as opposed to just relaxing and enjoy it. That part is is, is hard. Yeah. So go ahead. Sorry. I, I understand. Like a lot of my friends is like, so it's like, oh, so you work on films. So I was like, yes, I work on film and TV. So like, so can you just sit and watch and enjoy a film? It's like, not really, no. It's hard to get past it. It's like, fair enough, I can sit down, watch it. I can enjoy it for what it is, but I do have a lot of analytic things to say about it. And you can't help but compare if you did it, you would do it a different way. And it's, it's the, it's the curse of a filmmaker as to like, we, when you watch something else that happens, it's just, well, yeah, it is what it is. But, um, since this is like your first major film and it was a lot, 
I can imagine it's going to be a lot of a learning curve for you into making films, especially since your past career was to analyze, review, and tell other people your thoughts and opinions about films. But making your own film, it's quite hard to evaluate. So what was the most important lesson you learned from creating Wait, Wait, Don't Kill Me? Uh, don't ever make a movie like this. <laughs> uh, especially not in this way. Don't ever start like this. I just made all these mistakes. Um, what what was funny is that I had the advantage of starting in 2015 where I was more naive about it. And then there was an 18 month gap. So even though it was the same movie, it was kind of like it was my second film. Yeah. So I was able to learn all the lessons that you would, you would normally need the whole movie to learn. And it only took me half a movie to learn um, because I had all that time and planning and going, Oh, right. I don't, I don't need this. I mean, uh, I don't know if I've mentioned it. I mean, uh, you know, I'll tell tales out of school a little bit that I've done lots and lots of interviews. And sometimes you forget what you've already said in the same interview yeah. that just happens. Um, especially cause my movie came out yesterday and I'm, you know, the interviews are back to back to back to back. Um, <laughs> you know, just talk for several hours. I'm like, did I say that there? I don't know. Um, so there was a shooting day we did in 2017, which would be the second part of the film. And we did a couple of days like this um, in which we did uh, 18 sequences on, on 10 locations in less than 12 hours. We had people coming in from four different states, um, Pennsylvania, New York, Delaware, and New Jersey. And um uh, we had about 15 actors that day and we even snuck in some ADR while one of the, sh the scenes was being lit on a different location. And we just moved, and this is all under 12 hours. And in between takes, I would order bus tickets because we had a, people driving people back and forth to the bus station to go back to New York. Yeah. And when you, with that kind of stress, I mean, you work on sets, you, you realize how absurd it is to shoot 18 sequences on 10 different locations in the same day. Right. Yeah. In an under 12 hour day. Um, and just moving from spot to spot. Uh, the last sequence was, uh, the last the last two sequences were shot in, in an apartment about 25 minutes away from the other ones. The other, all the other locations were within about a mile or two of each other. So that wasn't that bad, but it was like, okay, we just got this part. We shot with a double. Let's try to match it. You know, we have, here are the images from, you know, from the previous footage. Let's make sure that you're in the right place and that you're saying the right thing. And now you're talking to an actor who's not there because we shot him a couple of weeks ago. And, and then we need your, your side here. And then you're, you'll, you'll help and you read off screen. And, and so on that day, I was the writer, producer, director, script supervisor, assistant camera, assistant director, makeup. And, and I ordered, as I said, bus tickets. And I also, you know, obviously directed the ADR while we were in the basement with the sound man, while they were lighting uh, something upstairs. Um, so, uh, and I'm sure I forgot something because I was the property master as well and had the props in my pocket. Um, I could never have done a day like that had I not had the experience of the first half of the film. Yeah. Um, and it was done quickly to where we had shot a couple of weeks before and it had to have a quick turnaround. So there were people we'd shoot all their scenes. It was one guy. We shot all his stuff in like three hours, sent him back to New York. He, 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 he was home by, you know, three or four o'clock in the afternoon. Um, even though he'd arrived at about 11 AM. Um, and, uh, you know, Philadelphia is about uh, 90 minutes from New York or two hours by bus. So he was, I think he was home by like four ish or something like that. And it was just go, you know, we'll, we'll get, we'll do this. You know, his scenes are separate. He's mostly doing, it's all dialogue. You know, there's not a lot of effects here. Uh, there was some in those, in those sequences. And it was just me adding blood to somebody's hand. I'm not really a makeup person. It was just, we had the blood. It had to be done. Yeah. You know, go. 
Um, so, and you'd think, well, how much of that footage ended up in the movie? And I'd say all of the necessary stuff. And, uh, I bet you can't tell where it is. Um, <laughs> Um, which is this because you'd be like well that seems rushed and i'd say i mean sure but it was meticulously planned and uh it was not something i could have conceived of before but it was done out of financial necessity and we did several days like that um that was the most ambitious in terms of going from location to location to location though um uh, that's one of those don't ever do that things <laughs> uh, the only way i was able to construct it is that um i i worked with the with my producer and uh, beforehand and um, uh, he was, he was putting out external fires while I was on set dealing with all the things as I was also like calling out the takes and, you know, the, the, the onset was two camera operators, sound man, me and the actors. And that was it. And then I'm having everybody fill out paperwork when you'd have like a new extra come in or, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, order lunch or whatever it was, you know, that, that yeah. kind of thing. Um, go, go, you know, holding was in one place, you'd have a driver and I had wrote out all the schedules, but I had. I had created this Excel document, which was basically how I kept track of where things, the order they were supposed to go in, what props were necessary for the scene, which actors, which extras, and, you know, if makeup was necessary, the address. And it was just this big spreadsheet that I had, I sent to the camera operators. My producer had a copy and I had a copy and it was just a cheat sheet. And I looked it over. And then when we fell behind, which you inevitably do, I was like, okay, we can scrap this one sequence because it was actually supposed to be more shot that day that we didn't get to, but it didn't end up mattering. And I just said, okay, well, let's change the order that we're doing this and let's do this one first because driving to this other place is 15 minutes out of the way. Let's not do that. Let's just skip it and do this other sequence first. And that the only way to do something like that is if you're really prepared and if you've, you've thought it through to the point where if there's a problem, which is inevitable, you can just change on the fly and it doesn't, you don't, you don't panic basically yeah I, I, I know what you mean yeah but the unfortunate thing about this industry is like no matter how much how, how much you're prepared for anything something always is going to go wrong even in big major productions and everything right but in major productions you can throw money at it yeah you can throw money at it there's some i i, I, I did not have that option <laughs> yeah that's the thing hey so um it sounds like a really interesting film. The concept looks amazing. I've seen the trailer. It's, I'm intrigued by it. I, I, I love this. I, I'm, I am definitely going to go and purchase a streaming ticket for it because like, I'm intrigued by it. But during the whole COVID-19 thing, to get getting it out would have been a bit of a struggle. So when once life starts to become more normal, is there any plans of submitting this film to international festivals in 2021? Uh, no. No. Um for for several reasons but um i as a film critic um uh have always thought of most film festivals as a scam yeah um and uh i saw that side of it and then uh as a filmmaker i saw a different side of it but my opinion didn't change and um uh, most films are not picked up at film festivals anymore and the way the distribution works is uh, there's going to be no money up front unless you've got a big star, in which case your movie would have cost a lot more than it did. Um, uh, only the major film festivals have any impact. And most of those films that are playing at film festivals actually do have big stars, have big directors, and may have been pre-purchased anyway before they even played at the festival. There's yeah. very few things that play at a festival that are just out of nowhere. It happens, but they don't necessarily lead to big ticket sales at all. It's very unusual 
everyone who thinks that happens all the time is thinking back on the the 1990s Miramax model, uh, which doesn't even remotely exist anymore. And so most of the small festivals that you'll you'll play at, um, they're just there to take your application fee. Yeah, no. And they're not going to promote it, and it's just going to sit around. And that may be what you want. You may need that 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 party where you flew out to another country and you you know oh my film's gonna be playing at this festival and how great it's gonna be and then you're there to meet other film fest filmmakers and like there's all this camaraderie but really that may be the highlight of your film that may that one day where you you had 70 people in the audience uh and they may have papered the audience for all you know which is basically you know gave away free tickets yeah um show up and uh you know they praise you oh it's so great this is going to do so well and then that's the highlight and then your movie never gets picked up and then one day it's on streaming you know four years later as you struggle to you know get it out there so i have uh when when i uh, signed my um sag contract uh, the screen actors guild uh the the deal that i had was no theatrical which it's still which virtual screenings are not theatrical and no um uh festivals and uh knowing what i knew i didn't care yeah um, it was not it was not something that i thought of as preventative because uh, it's a horror film you can sell it without name name actors and you can um it doesn't you know th- there's very few things that you can do oh i don't have a name well it's a horror film you know there's a market for it always a market for horror films was th- was the thought so no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be interested in you know if somebody, especially because you know they're the the festival is going to have even less power now. Yeah. Because most of it's going to be virtual. Because why would you sit in a theater full of disease for two hours for a movie you'd never heard of? Um, the the buzz that you get from you know that until they come up with some vaccine or something like that, I can't think of a reason that you would go to a festival. And these virtual festivals are are just as bogus because. It's just a, it's basically an excuse for your movie to be pirated. And um, if, uh, you know, you, you put it out there, you're not being paid for the, for it to appear at the festival. I mean, that's very, it happens, but it's very rare. Um, and it's playing, you know, on virtual screens, which means very few people are watching it at once. Yeah. You know, I, I know they've been doing the virtual can virtual and they'll do virtual AFM and all these things, but you know, I, you're mostly just paying the the organizers you're paying their salaries and i i don't i don't honestly see a benefit in it i mean i went to film school i understand you know from our conversation off the air that you also went to film school yeah would you do it again i wouldn't um i wouldn't do um, university again no it's it was um the most stressful three years of my life and i'm twenty seven thousand pound in debt because of it and Right. And, and, and there's nothing you, you couldn't learn making a movie yourself now that it's so cheap. I mean, the, the, it ties into what I was just saying about film festivals. It's so cheap to make a movie right now that um, there's so much product. And so film festivals can pick and choose and you'll get rejected from any number of them. And it's not it has nothing to do with whether your movie is good or not. Most of them are never going to watch it. You may have put in an application fee and they're not going to watch it. Uh, I'm in a, a Facebook group with tons of filmmakers and I read stories like that all the time. Uh, sometimes filmmakers have the gumption to ask for their money back because they they can look at their Vimeo stats and see that they it was never watched and ask. But most of the time, it, the money does not come back yeah. at all. I know too many scam fe- film festivals uh, and even good natured ones where it's it's just not going to matter. And and you know, uh, film school like 
going to a film festival for a filmmaker is about networking. That's the only advantage you have. Um, if you can get around that through social media and meet people a different way, that's that's different. And, sa- and save yourself all the student debt. Just do that. Yeah. Um. I don't know what it was like to study um film and TV production in America, but in the UK, our lecturers always pushed on the idea that you will not get anywhere unless you go to a film festival or you a network or you spend all this money and then encourage you to save up and spend more money, which with today's economy is complete bullshit, excuse the language. But also the whole point of film and TV production in my university, it was mostly documentaries. We never got told how to make proper films. We just got told documentaries. And a lot of that is can be easily learned via trial and error. So I do feel a bit scammed at the point of like I spent nine grand a year just to learn this when I could have learned it myself trial and error and by well, going to Let me just say that by only spending nine grand a year, you got away with it. Only nine grand. Yeah, I've, I've seen I've seen some tuition fees over like for sale university, and that's like really expensive. And I felt lucky paying nine paying nine grand a year for mine. But I'm not saying like film school isn't a complete scam. Film school is brilliant to start off somewhere. It's a good starting point. It is. No matter how much I shit on my on my experience and my time at university, I still think I still say like it was the best three years of my life. I had fun. I met a, a ton of amazing people. I've met a lot of lecturers and they were amazing. I loved every minute of it, but it's a love hate relationship with film school, in my opinion, in my experience. Is it like the same with a with an American film school? Uh, yeah, but it's much more expensive. A lot more expensive. Uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, I think if I had to guess, I would say I'm, I, I don't know how old you are, but I'm 42. I'm 26. Are you comfortable? Okay. <laughs> so you spent 9,000 a year and I can tell you that, uh, mine was much more expensive than that. And I went to school in the late nineties and graduated in 2000. And so I don't even want to know what it costs for people now. I got to assume in the neighborhood of 50,000 a year. Um, More than likely. And that's, that's, that's a lot of student debt. And uh, yeah, you're just doing it for the networking. I didn't, it wasn't bad where I went to school. I don't have a problem with it. Uh, But here's what I knew. I started out uh, in high school as a production assistant. Yeah. uh, Working for a TV company and do promo shoots for networks or, commercials or magazine things or whatever it was and um occasionally work on on uh major films in an uncredited way um and i knew that if i went to film school and then i continued in that vein just working on sets from the bottom up uh by now at the age of 42 i would be like a camera assistant uh i would never have made anything because uh, America uh, tells you a lie about the American dream and that you work your way up from, you know, from the bottom and you'll eventually hit the top. And it's not really true. Yeah. Um, America is, is networking and nepotism and that's it. That's the same. Oh um, yeah. It's a lot of network and it's, it's who, you know, and who you're willing mm-hmm. to like talk to and who you're willing, what you're willing to do on a lot of mm-hmm. things the whole point of being like to make it in the film industry anywhere in the world as i can imagine is 
to basically hold yourself out, not like literally hold yourself out, just the whole point of like keep sending your CV to everyone, to anyone, and mm-hmm. just or or just be going. a force of nature. Yeah, that's that's the other option, which is, and I'm not saying I'm I'm a force of nature. I just know that part of me being very tenacious is what got the movie made, and any other project I do is because I'm going to be tenacious and I'm just not going to take you know. Uh, I'm going to be like, okay, we're doing it. It's not like my word is the final word. It's here's my concept. Here's what I think. If, if uh, you have a better idea, speak up, but you know, some, the, someone who's willing to be more vociferous like I am and, you know, take over a conversation, which you could probably accuse me of in this case <laughs> uh, between you and I, uh, uh, although anyone who knows me in my private life life knows that it's actually a lot worse. Um, uh, and in which the when, when I'm being interviewed or talking, uh, you know, when it's being recorded, I slow down about sixty percent versus what is really going on in my brain. Yeah, and how much faster it'll come out uh, when I'm just having a regular conversation. Uh, it's it's frequently exhausting. So any of you listening who are exhausted, you're you're th- this you're getting the nice side of this. It would be worse if I if I had, if I had just let the brain go. Uh, Jay, Jay would have not said a whole, uh, an entire word without me interrupting and steamrolling him. Um, but uh, the point I'm making is, is that it, it is the, the need to be a force of nature to just be, uh, you know, I, this is how we're going to go about it. Here's my idea. If you've got a better idea, speak up. That's fine. I'm open to whatever new ideas are, but it's, it's not a, you cannot be denied. Of course you can be denied, but it's here, here's, here's my thought process. You know, I have I have considered all the possibilities, I think. Yeah. And and just be forceful in that way and um, be willing to have a discussion, have an argument. Um, don't be afraid of confrontation. Don't get into fights, but don't be afraid uh, of being wrong because you're going to be wrong. But, all, you know, don't have a big ego about the fact that you're going to be wrong a lot. Persistence. Uh, but you're going to be up. You're going to be up against it's persistence. Yes. Yeah. Tenacious being tenacious and being persistent is really a lot of it. I mean, they say, you know, what, what's the cliche like, you know, showing up as 90 percent of of the job. I don't think that's quite it because uh, you can show up and be untalented and and it's not going to help you very much. No. Uh, and I'm not saying that, like I'm the most talented. I just like I have a modicum of talent <laughs> and then uh, a lot of persistence. And, you know, wherever I go from there is, you know, it's going to be based on, on, on that persistence. I'll have lots and lots of bad ideas uh, that'll get made into movies if I keep going. Um, it's just about, you know, raising the money and, and doing it that way, especially in an industry now where independent filmmakers do not uh, make any money at all. And I don't mean like, oh, you don't break even. You don't, you know, no, you don't even get close to breaking even. No. And um, it's a. Uh, it's a sad fact that uh, not knowing the, the time limits you have here, Jay, I, I don't know how much to get into what distribution is like, but um, know that anybody who is struggling with it and can't figure out a pathway, it's not your fault because there is no pathway. That's definitely, there's, 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 there's no set way to do it and there's no right way to do it. But as an independent filmmaker, do you feel like your voice can't be heard within the world that's easily accessible to multiple video streaming services? Uh, yeah, no, that's absolutely true. Yeah. Um, there's hundreds of these thousands of streaming services and um, I've been accepted to a handful of them. And um, you just, uh, my way of going about this is to line them up and sign a bunch of non-exclusive deals where if something doesn't work out, okay, you know, 
I still own the rights. Yeah. I can still do what I want with it. Um, uh, and if it doesn't, you know, it's better to sign than signing it away to, to, to one company that then eventually scams you. than if, you know, I sign up with 40 companies and 38 of them don't work out, but two of them did, then, you know, I'm like, great. This virtual screening thing came up, you know, it, 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 the deal was signed like a couple of days ago and then the movie was out by yesterday yeah. one of the, from when we're recording this. Um, I couldn't even make an announcement really until the day before we, it came out, <laughs> which is a very hard way of doing it because it meant I had to call all the people or uh, or email or send Facebook messages of interviews that are already done and say, uh, can you, how quickly can you put this out? <laughs> and, and, you know, I can't, you know, I can't, uh, I can't, I'm not remotely upset that not all of them could get it out right away. Of course not. That's, you know, there are always delays. And, and, you know, if you record something months before, you can't then give somebody three days notice and say, Hey, when you can get this out. Yeah. No, so, I mean, yeah. um, this was just a late opportunity and I was like, absolutely. I'm, I'm taking it. Um, you know, it gives my film validity to, to play via a, a real movie theater. Um, even though it's not in the physical theater itself. Um, uh, but that's just how movies, you know, open now. And, and, uh, you know, I, uh, I had a small amount of pride looking at the, the, uh, the email blast sent out by the theater that had my movie next to some, uh, uh, more legitimate movies. I'm not saying my movie's not legitimate, but sitting next to a documentary about the, the, uh, the recently late politician, John Lewis, yeah. uh, <laughs> there, my movie is literally right next to it on the page. Like, oh, here's your thing. And here's 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 a documentary about a very serious person on a very serious subject. And here's your silly movie about a virus. Um, well, and, and you, you, you know, there are very few moments when making a movie that you that you like that are heartwarming or um, that are like, wow, like this is the good part. There's so much of it that's not the good part. Um, there's so little of it that is. Um, satisfying it's so much of a struggle and i totally understand people who don't want to do it especially if you're work uh, you know as i said working from the bottom it's a it's a dead end um now the problem is when people realize that that they're like i'll go make my own movie it means that there's a glut of product and you know all these streaming services as you said it's so cheap to start your own streaming service that they can you know play favorites they can pay you basically nothing. I mean, the payouts on these streaming services are ridiculous, and you and and you have to reach thresholds of say like a hundred dollars. And there's no way if they're not promoting your movie and they're paying you a couple of cents anytime anyone watches it, and they've have like three thousand movies on there. I'm not talking Amazon. That's that's a minefield. But uh, you know, if they've got three thousand movies on there and your movie's not distinguished because it's just another horror title, or they're not paying to market their channel at all. Yeah. You know, and they're and they're you know, oh well, we'll, we'll do a split. We'll do a, rev- a revenue share, fifty uh, fifty split. Well, fifty fifty splitting what? And before we get to a hundred dollars, I mean, what I might see, I might see that hundred dollars in uh, three or four years, and by that point, you're probably out of business. And if you reach that hundred dollars, I wouldn't even know. What am I going to do? Chase you down? Yeah. Uh, am I going to hire a lawyer? You know, to try to get my hundred dollars back? <laughs> no. And they're not paying you for the right to your to your film. You're you're giving it to them. Um, that's, that's how this all works now is there's no upfront money. Uh, if you made it a independent film and the back end money, you've got to figure out yourself. The, 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 deals are structured, uh, completely against the filmmaker and you can negotiate all you want. If you're working with a scam company, they're just going to rip you off. And eventually the margins are so thin on all these places that they're all going to just end up ripping you off. And you have to know that you have to, you know, what, what you're taught, um, 
within the, you know, when filmmakers talk about distribution is carve up your rights as thinly as possible. So I've tried to do that is sign a deal, but like I still own it. And then they, they, they can do, they can show it in on their platform for a certain amount of time. And that's, that's how long that is, but I can continue to do what I want. I can negotiate with all these other places and it's exhausting because you have to, everything is changing all the time. And you have to like virtual screenings didn't exist before the pandemic. Why would, why would they? Um, yeah, it, it would, you know, Oh, I'm going to play a movie on, on, on my TV, even though it should be playing in the theater that didn't exist. But now that you, you can't have open movie theaters in America, it was just like some, somebody thought, how do we keep art theaters and independent theaters in business? That's the way. And so, you know, I was like, okay, let's try that. That's fine. Yeah. Um, since the pandemic, virtual screaming, uh, screaming, screaming, what virtual screaming, virtual screening seems to be the way forward. My, my previous episode that I'm showing COVID-19, I do state that basically thanks to the pandemic, a lot of major film studios are starting to stream on their own service or on another service. DreamWorks did it with Trolls World Tour on Amazon Prime. And they made a record-breaking thing of being the most pre-ordered film within the first three days of virtual streaming. Disney's starting to follow up with um, Mulan. On right, but they but here's the thing those. about what you're saying: they they didn't make their money back no. doing that. But that's they may have made a hundred million dollars, but what did they spend marketing it, and what did they spend making it? Yeah, we'll never know the full thing anyway. Anyway, let's um. I've got one final question before I let you go and continue your, your day. <laughs> if you don't mind. What would what, what uh, tongue twisted. What advice would you give to anyone looking to create a comedy horror as it's a weird mix to make and it's a hard thing to do right without it being too cheesy or too gory? Um the balance is hard. There's so few good horror comedies. I mean if I if I laid down, oh, what are the best horror comedies? Uh, Evil Dead 2, Reanimator, uh, uh, Shaun of the Dead. Um, uh, um, uh, what am I forgetting? Uh, Cabin in the Woods. Um, uh, what's what's the one with the two hillbillies in the in the in the uh, in the in the horror film? Um, what's that one called? Why can't I remember? Um, it's not um... Tuck, uh, uh, Tuck, Tucker and Dale versus Evil. Yeah. Um, uh, and and then you know the the list starts to run a little short um, after that after that you you hit those high notes you know uh, you know Sam Raimi made the Evil Dead movies and 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 Drag Me to Hell is a great one it's a great horror comedy um, uh, but it is such an awkward balance that um, there's no there's no foolproof way to think through it because you have to be on the verge of making fun of the thing that you're doing seriously. Yeah. And that, that, that creates a, a, a tonal issue. And I was very concerned with tone. One of my um, favorite films drifts in and out of tone changes all the time. It's called something wild by Jonathan Demi. And it starts as um, a goofy comedy. It's with Jeff Daniels, Melanie Griffith, Ray Liotta, 1986. And it starts as a goofy comedy, then turns into a darker sex comedy, um, then becomes a thriller, then goes back to more of a satirical piece about Americana, and then goes back to a serious thriller, very violent, and then some goofy comedy interrupts, then back to serious thriller, and then ends sort of on lighter comedy. And we watch the movie just marveling at it, like, how did you manage to do this without 
um, without, uh, you know, causing the audience to have tonal whiplash. Yeah. So there's not really a straight answer to this. I was conscious of how do I move, you know, in and out of different tones and different styles without alienating everybody. And I was just kind of resigned to the fact that uh, I, I wouldn't know if it worked until it came out. And because you have no objectivity when you make a movie, I don't know if it worked. I think individual scenes might work better than the movie as a whole. But again, I have no objectivity. There's things that I think that are great in it that are better than what I conceived of because of the acting or the animation or, you know, the, the way the scene just came together. Um, uh, it was, it was better. You know, you they will say that uh, if you can get 25% of what's in your head on the screen, you did a good job. Well, I think I did that. Um, the script pretty much reads like the movie plays uh, whether someone might call that disjointed or not. I, I can't, I don't know. I, I wouldn't argue with them if that's how they described it. Yeah. Um, so to answer your question, like there's not a, there's, there's absolutely no foolproof way to get a horror comedy, right? It's an accident when it happens. Um, you have to be on the verge of camp or self-awareness probably at all times. Yeah. And uh, I, I don't know. I'm trying to think of one of those like really successful ones, which don't, you know, you know, one of the most influential movies for me was, was another one, the Peter Jackson movie, uh, brain dead yeah. or is known as America De dead alive. Um, but even that has hints of self-awareness um, where, you know, they break the fourth wall very briefly, but it's there. And um, I was conscious of never doing that because I thought if I want the movie to be taken seriously, you can't break the fourth wall. You can't let the audience know that they're watching a movie. You can go so meta that it works like cabin in the woods, I think is a masterpiece. I don't know if you've seen that. Um I haven't seen. I've heard a lot of mixed views about it. It's on my um, letterbox watch list. So. Okay, um, I would be curious because that is a movie about horror movies. Yeah, while while working as a horror film and making fun of the cliches, I mean, Scream is an obvious influence for this stuff. Um, when you go meta and then you still make a traditional horror film, but while I like Scream, I think it fails in certain ways because they'll make fun of a cliche and then do it. And I think of that as what I guess you call now lampshading. Yeah. And, uh, and it wasn't as prevalent then, but I, I think scream is pretty good still, even if maybe the opening is the strongest part. And then the rest of it is pretty good. Um, but then anytime that they actually have the running up the stairs or going to the garage or saying, I'll be right back. And they're making fun of it. It's like drawing attention to it. Ha ha. That is funny. But, you still haven't solved the problem of, you know, why do these people have to behave like idiots? And wh what I tried to do in my film is nobody is stupid. Um, nobody behaves in, in, in a moronic fashion. Um, I didn't want to write stupid people, um, as I said earlier. So I was, I was careful with it. Now in the, in the horror films that the horror comedies that succeed, I think you do still have stupid people and that's, yeah, but they're, they're, I mean that's a, yeah, yeah to, but they're not like unbelievably stupid. No, they do are like yeah. Well, Tucker and Dale versus Evil, like you know, the characters are assumed to be so stupid because they're they're backwoods redneck types. Yeah, and that's a still that's playing on stereotypes. But like on Shaun of the right. Dead, you've got the typical British ignorance stupid. It's not, it's not like completely stupid. It's like it's a believable stupid. If you know what I mean? Yes. 
Because yes, like, a lot of films do like, it's like no one can't be that idiotic and other ones play on quite smart. So yes, there's people in the world that are less ignorant to things, but they're still, they're still it's still written as a good, stupid, if, if, that, if that makes sense. <laughs> well, you, you, have to, you have to walk this line where if that person was in the wild, yes. just, and I don't mean like in the woods, like just, you know, you know, living their regular life, would that person still be alive? You know, would they have, is a person so dumb that there's no way that they could cross the street without getting run over? Um, is this person so dumb that they, they wouldn't back themselves over with their own car? Like if someone is that stupid in your movie, I would take that person out. Um, <laughs> because, because it, it breaks, it breaks faith to do something like that. Um, and sure, it allows you a little bit of leeway in terms of, oh, I needed the plot to have this to happen. But it, I think it undermines you. But again, I'm thinking of all these these you know horror comedies that I do think work. And I guess you know you have more outrageous behavior in something like Reanimator. But maybe there's nobody so stupid. But you do have naive characters. Yeah, it's it's just, um, it's just not quite ignorant rather than stupid. Yeah. Right. Um, but uh. So, so to answer your question, there is no foolproof way to do it because it it rarely works. Um, switching tones is always is always difficult. It's a it's a it's a strange balance. Sam Raimi may have been one of the only filmmakers to ever kind of perfect drifting in and out of camp and and, and a real movie. Um, uh, you with say I'd say Evil Dead Two, Drag Me to Hell. I think he does it very well in Dark Man, um, and uh, Army of Darkness is more I think straight comedy a lot of the time more more goofy and campy um uh but evil dead 2 has a lengthy sequence where bruce campbell is acting just with himself which i think is one of one of the great bits of acting i can remember because i'm like well, how hard is this to do you're on screen by yourself for what a, must mean like a third of the film um you know that seems kind of a challenge and you're doing slapstick um by yourself you have no, you have no straight man. You're the straight man and the and the comedy. Um, so I was always impressed with that. I mean, also the camera work in in uh, the Remy movies is unbelievable, and so the technical skill I think is key if you're going to keep that balance. Because you know, again, I I I think staying away from camp is is important, but that's a personal preference, um, and, and that I get distracted when something goes campy because i think that's a cop out yeah i think that e i think that's an easy way it reminds me of um the criticism of the filmmaker russ meyer um who uh maybe your audience will know maybe they won't um his most famous film is beyond the valley of the dolls but there was up there was cherry harry and raquel beneath the valley ultra vixens and he made these campy over the top like edited like you know way over edited movies filled with women with enormous breasts and they'd be like kind of softcore sex comedies. And um, his most famous film was is called The Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, which is a not real sequel to Valley of the Dolls. And the script was written by critic Roger Ebert. And they're kind of like half parroting biopics and it goes into a camp uh, vein. But anytime Russ Meyer tried to make a real movie, he couldn't. Like when you see his more traditional attempts at real movies in which he didn't go campy, it doesn't really work. So it, it always told me something that like your way of making fun of the thing is because you can't quite do it. It's the, it's the, 
I'm not going to say this company because they offered me a deal. Uh, it's a, if there's another company that does this, uh, wherein uh, they only make things that are self-aware parodies of the thing they're doing because they can't quite bring off the thing that they're doing. Yeah. Um, I'd leave it to your audience to figure out who I'm talking about. Yeah, I don't really want to say um, any names on air. <laughs> well, because they offered me a deal. Yeah. Uh, I probably won't end up taking it, but, uh, you know, the, the offer was, is in the wind, basically. Um, uh, I know people who have worked there and, you know, uh, uh, getting paid is not uh, high on the priority there. Um, but um, uh, I'll leave it to the sleuths to figure out what I'm talking about. Um, but yeah, they, they are all of their films that they made themselves. They do a lot of pickups uh, uh, are in the same vein of, of not being quite confident enough to, to be a real movie and um, undermining themselves by, by being campy and over the top because uh sincerity is just not going to work because they don't quite have the skill level i think yeah maybe 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 they do and and they're just hedging their bets it's hard to know if you never do it and and, you know it the the issue is this you hide behind genres because uh you use you use whatever genre that you're you're specializing in uh you 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 do that uh because uh to to whatever your personal feelings are going to be hidden by the genre because uh personal feelings expressed sincerely can come off as very embarrassing. And so you hide behind it. Like I'm always going to be writing dark comedies because that's, that's what I understand. That's the way that I see the world. So uh, even if I've got, you know, personal points and politics and things I want to throw in, it's always going to be behind the mask of a dark comedy. Yeah. Cause you always find um, what you know and right, right. Where you see experience in life. That's where great right that's come from. Right, but you use the genre as a mask. You use it like to to hide behind. Okay, well, I'm still, you know, my next film that I wrote that I would love to make, but I don't know about the pandemic preventing it, is a a, a kidnapping thriller. Now, I've never been kidnapped, but there are some true to life elements in the film, and um, it still fits all of the things that how my mind works. But I'm I'm using the shield of a, of a, of a kidnapping thriller as a way to mask the real sincere parts and that's how that works and so i don't know with this company that i was talking about whether they're they don't want to be sincere because then you know if they're called out on it and and you know they're um revealed to be not good at it that that might be too much pain that could be part of it although they're not after they're, that company's not after good reviews so maybe that shouldn't be a concern yeah i, I comprehend what you're saying yeah <laughs> I, I'm assuming you know what company I'm talking about without saying it. I'll t- I'll tell you off the air and you'll go, oh yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, well, I think that's all we have time for, Adam. Um, this was a brilliant first interview in my experience. I don't know about you. I apologize for any lack of experience I may have had. <laughs> um, I appreciate you coming on the show and thank you very much for being my first ever filmmaker to interview. Do you have any closing words? Um, uh, don't do interviews. No, I'm just, kidding. <laughs> uh, um, no, just go see, uh, uh, wait, wait, don't kill me now playing at the colonial theater, not technically playing at the colonial theater, but go to wait, wait, don't kill me.com or the colonial theater's website where it's virtually screening and you can see it, uh, at home. Um, and, uh, uh, I hope you enjoy it and, um, and that, 
uh, all of you listening do see whatever the next film is whenever I can make it. I'm, I'm looking forward to see your future projects. Uh, po- projects? Projects. Um, well, thank you very much for listening to me ramble on of Adam Lippy. Um, please check out his work. And thank you very much. Thank you for coming on, Adam. Sure. If you like this episode, you can follow me personally on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook at jfinlsondp. If you want to follow the podcast, it's at jfinpodcast. And also you can check out the podcast official website, which is also my journal of stuff I do and film reviews, www.jfinlsond.net. All links is in the description of this podcast and this episode. Thank you very much, and I hope you have a lovely day.